right, everyone. Good morning, Vineyard Springbrook. Um, we're going to go ahead and jump into our scripture this morning. And so one of the first passages I'll be reading out of will be Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. And starting in verse 11, it says, As Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village there, ten men with leprosy stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, Go sow yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, shouting, Praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. This is the gospel of Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. And because I preach this good news, I am suffering and have been chained like a criminal. But the word of God cannot be chained. So I'm willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. This is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Remind everyone about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Um, as I do every week for this room and for these people, thank you that your spirit has a way of showing up here. And so we say, come Holy Spirit. We welcome you in this place and we welcome you in these moments. I pray that, um, I pray that we will learn more of you, more of ourselves in light of you because of our time together this morning. I heard someone pray recently about uh, how there's so many words that come at us during the week, millions and millions and millions of words that come at us during the week. Um, but this is, these are our moments that we hear words from you. And so I pray that you give us ears to hear those, ears to hear what you have for us in our time together. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so um, we are really right smack dab in the middle of a series here at the Vineyard that we're calling The Letters. Um, and so what we're doing is we're bouncing around uh, in First and Second Timothy, looking at letters written from Paul uh, to Timothy, who's his spiritual son, his, his uh, protege. And, um, and so just a reminder, just to kind of catch you up over the last little while, Paul um, uh, has handed over what is arguably his favorite church uh, to Timothy, the Ephesian church. And so Timothy's pastoring the church in Ephesus, and, and that had just happened in the letter in 1 Timothy. And so 1 Timothy is kind of um, 
his pastoral advice of like, here's, here's how you start a church and here's how you uh, run with a church. But now, as of the last time we were together here in this room, we're in 2 Timothy. And the situation in 2 Timothy is a little bit different uh, than in 1 Timothy. Uh, it's five years later. So Timothy has been pastoring a church uh, for five years. And what I've learned four years in is that five years is plenty of time to realize how tired you are and um, how very in over your head you are. And so that's, that's what we have Timothy. We have He knows what it's like to pastor this group of people. Um, he knows how giant of a job it is. And, and so Paul's sort of writing to him in that, in that place. Um, but Paul also is in a different place than he was in first Timothy. Um, uh, he's no longer under house arrest or on the road on missionary journeys. Paul is writing this letter from prison. In our text today, he says he's chained because of the gospel. And so he's writing from prison. He's in a cold, dark cell, uh, imprisoned by Nero. And these, uh, second Timothy are some of Paul's, they are Paul, theologians believe Paul's last recorded words. The last thing he had to say uh, before the death. He's 60 years old and he knows that outside of some giant miracle of the Lord, which has happened before, this is how he's going out. He knows that the end is near. Um, and so this letter has a little bit of a different tone than 1 Timothy. Um, this letter is a little less about doctrine, though it's Paul, so he still throws that in there all over the place. Um, but it's a little less about doctrine, and it's a little more a letter to Timothy um, uh, uh, reminding him what the point of the race he's running is. Like, why it matters that he's doing what he's doing. This is a letter of hope and a letter of encouragement, a letter reminding Timothy of the practices of people who run the race with all they've got for as long as they've got to run it. Um, it's a, a letter that's meant to sort of realign the compass, to, to remind Timothy of what's behind him in order to encourage him of what's coming for him, what's, what's in front of him, uh, what's before him. It's reminding Timothy of his place in the great story. Uh, the, the Bible reads like this narrative of this one giant great story that we're all a part of. And, and what Paul does over and over again in 2 Timothy is he pulls Timothy back to remind him of his part in this great and giant story. And the reason he does this is because Paul knows that this is what he needs. That as his spiritual father to his spiritual son, he's like, sometimes you just need reminding. Paul knows that Timothy will need it. Um, and, and, and as we've said before, this isn't just a letter to Timothy or the church at Ephesus. It's a letter to us, to the church here, to the, to the people of God here. And if you follow Jesus for more than just a few minutes, you have most likely realized that in running this race, we don't ever stop needing reminders of why we're running and what we're running toward. It's like this race where you run and then you forget what you're doing. You're like, what, what am I doing here? Where am I going? Why did, why did I even start doing this? And so in 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy, to the church, to us, about moments um, when we forget why we're running, moments when we forget where we're headed, moments that uh, when our faith starts to feel lifeless and hopeless, uh, moments when we're overwhelmed, or maybe moments when we're stale, moments when faith feels a little bit less. And again, not just a letter to Timothy, but a letter for all of us, because we all have moments like that. Moments where our faith feels less than it did before. There are so many moments uh, in following Jesus that feel so alive. Like electric, I guess is probably the best word. So alive that you feel faith in your bones, in your guts. 
There are moments following Jesus that feel like magic and hope and power and glory, thin moments that exist. And if you don't know these moments, if you've been following Jesus and you, and you don't know what I'm talking about, don't give up until you have moments like this. They exist, these wild and huge and, and thin moments. Do not give up on longing for moments of, of true taste and true sight of God because they exist. Uh, the moments when you feel like you can hold the mystery of the holy in your hands and in your heart. Uh, but not all moments of walking with Jesus are like that. Uh, it's really hard for me to trust anyone who says that every moment of following Jesus feels like magic. Because it just isn't my experience. That hasn't been my experience at all. There are plenty of moments in this journey that feel the exact opposite. That feel Instead of feeling uh, wild and alive, they feel tedious and lifeless. I can go from being so sure about things to so unsure about things in like a matter of seconds. Sometimes it's so fast. Sometimes it's this long transition of, of being sure and then being so sure. I can be so confident of the voice of God in my life, so confident that I can hear from God of the activity of the Spirit happening in my life to moments where it feels like total silence where I forget what God's voice even sounds like, where I wonder if I've ever even heard God's voice at all. It's sort of like a roller coaster, and Paul writes all of his letters into this, into this roller coaster of a faith, roller coaster of a journey. I heard another pastor use this as an example um, recently, and it rang so true to me in my experience with, with my boys. So I have one shy kid. So, so Daniel and I, we have three boys, Campbell, Graham, and Huck. And if you know Campbell and Graham, you know they aren't very shy. Like, they pretty much will talk to anyone about anything. I've had to drag them out of stores. Like, yes, thank you. The, the salesperson is having a wonderful day, and she does drive a Honda Civic. That's, that's a great car, you know. And so they will, they, they're like Daniel and I. They will talk to anyone uh, about anything, and, um, and that's who they are. And then uh, we have Huck, and Huck is just different. He, he is very different. He's a little bit more reserved than the rest of us. Huck is uh, far less likely to come up to you or to initiate a conversation with you or honestly respond to you if you talk to him. Um, he, 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 he's just different. The truth is Huck is, is very wild and he's very energetic. Like he is so wild and he is so sweet and he's so smart and he's so funny. Like he is so, so funny. He does, he does these faces. Um, like he can do impressions of people's faces. It's unbelievable. Don't ask him to do this today. He will die so, no, he doesn't want you to ask him, but so I'll just tell you about it. They're hilarious. Um, he has an entire series of impressions of my mother in the car that are so spot on. We made him do it at Los Amigos the other day, and even she was laughing. Um, they're, they're absolutely incredible. This, this is who he is. And so in these moments, like when he's with my parents um, or, or with specific people, uh, when Huck feels safe and known, the most true him shows up. Like when he feels safe, when he feels known, when he's sort of in his groove, then the most him, the wild him, the funny him, the, the chatty him will show up. And that's especially around certain people. Um, 
like uh, Zoe Harris. Zoe Harris uh, was our two doors down neighbor for years and years and years. And, um, and Zoe is like this safety blanket for Huck. Like if Zoe is in a room, uh, the true Huck is coming out. He just feels safe because she's around. And so uh, when Zoe's in a room, you get the wild and the loud and the chatty and the hilarious boy. But then there are other rooms, or if Zoe leaves the room, um, when that wild, hilarious, and chatty boy starts to feel uncomfortable or um, a little less known or a little more self-conscious, and he sort of shifts into something else, and a, a quieter something else. He gets quiet, and he gets kind of to himself, and it's like he gets a little bit smaller because he doesn't want you to see. He's less sure. He's a little less wild. He's a little more cautious. And it's so incredible to me uh, to watch as I'm learning my boy and watching my boy. It's incredible to me how, um, how it can shift so quickly, how it can go from being so confident and so sure to so unsure in a matter of seconds. To like clinging to my leg and not letting go in a matter of seconds. Like even in the same room sometimes. You'll get one, and then, and then something will happen, and, and he sort of uh, gets a little bit smaller in the same room. And I relate to this on a deep, deep level when it comes to life with Jesus. Like when it comes to life with Jesus, I feel so sure and so confident. And sometimes even in the same room, it shifts to something a little smaller, something a little less sure. Or sometimes it's over long seasons where I look back and I'm like, oh, I was so excited, and now I'm so I don't have a word. Ugh. Does that work? And Paul, he understands this. And so he writes this letter to Timothy uh, as a reminder and as an encouragement uh, for the moments of unsure, for the moments when we feel small or powerless or bored or stale, for the moments when we're so consumed with what's going on around us instead of what's inside changing everything inside of us. Paul, he starts our text today to Timothy like this. He says, remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of David, was raised from the dead. That's how he starts out. Remember Jesus, the king of the Jews, who is no longer dead. Paul starts this out by doing the thing that he does in every single letter that he ever writes. He reminds Timothy of the great story of Jesus. That's what he does. It's, it's what he's always doing every time he picks up a pen. Paul spends every letter coming back to the story of Jesus, to the great story of the universe. Um, I've said it up here, and um, if we've ever talked about preaching before, that one of the hardest parts of preaching every week is feeling like you stand on a stage in front of um, a group of people, often the same group of people, and say the same thing over and over and over again. Like you're trying to come up with new and creative ways to say the exact same thing. But the truth is, that's kind of the job. Like that's kind of the gig. It's, it's what Paul does. Every letter he writes uh, goes back to the same thing, to the story of Jesus. It's, it's sort of Paul's answer to everything. Going back to the story is the way Paul answers everything. Paul, in a very simple view of his writing, spends his letter reminding, letters reminding the church of who Jesus is of who he was and what he was about and what that means he's asking us to be part of. Uh, Paul's answer to our lifeless faith, to our unsure faith, to our tedious or burned out or stale or stagnant or bored faith is to remind us of the story of Jesus. It's why we sing um, songs like, Is He Worthy? around here all the time, to go back to the story to remind us. We stole that trick from Paul. 
And so I want to spend the last few minutes of our time today uh, just doing that. Doing that, going back to the story of Jesus. So if you're here and you can't remember the last time you felt sure or the last time you felt alive in your faith, if you haven't ever or haven't in a very long time believed uh, in Jesus so much that you feel it in your bones, if, if your prayer and your worship and the things of God feel tedious or numb or boring or silent, you are welcome here. And have I got a story for you? And here's the other thing. If you're here and you don't feel those ways, if you're sitting in this room and you feel so alive, uh, we need you too. We need you to exist in this room too because you remind us of hope. You smell like hope, like the story might just actually be true. I have some friends right now, and, and through some stuff they're doing, they are so alive. They are so unbelievably alive in their faith, and they can't quit talking about it. And these are really good friends to have when the road feels dry. The ones who are like, hey, no, it's, it's good. I remember what it's like to forget, too. It's, it's really good. So, um, in fact, when Paul talks about the sweet seasons of life in his letters, uh, he does that exact same thing. So when he talks about the hard and the storing and the, bail, the stale and the overwhelming, Paul brings it back to the stories of Jesus. And when he talks about the really sweet seasons of life, he says, you want to you know what the secret is to the sweet seasons of life? And he brings it back to the story of Jesus. That's, that's sort of his cycle. It's, it's what he does. So uh, let's look back um, at the story that Chad already read of the lepers out of Luke 17. And I'm going to reread it, but um, I'm going to do sort of a hybrid with the message version. So Luke 17, if you want to follow along, it's verse 11, but um, you'll have to combine some translations if you have my brain. It'll help. Um, As Jesus entered the village between Samaria and Galilee, 10 men, all lepers, came to him. They kept their distance, but raised their voices, calling out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Taking a good look at them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. So they went, and while they were still on their way, they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, shouting his gratitude, saying, praise God. He kneeled at Jesus' feet, so grateful for what he had done, and this man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where, there, where are the other nine? Can none be found to come back and give glory to God except this outsider? And then Jesus said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has healed and saved you. Jesus, he's walking to Jerusalem, and he's in between two different worlds, Galilee and Samaria, his place and the enemy place. And, and, and he happens upon a town, and there he happens upon a group of men, all of whom are lepers. And if you um, know about leprosy, then you know that what this means is this group of 10 men, they are complete outcasts. Their bodies are covered in sores, and they have been determined by the church and the government to be unclean and unfit for human interaction. Lepers were walking reminders of death. They look like death. They smelled like death. And no one wants to be reminded of death all of the time, and so people treated them as if they were dead. They treated them as if they had no life, and so they were outcasts. And these outcasts, they see Jesus coming through, and they, they cry out to him, Master, have mercy on us. And Jesus, his answer is a little bit strange. 
If you've read stories of Jesus healing leprosy before, you know he, there's a time that a man cries out similarly and Jesus goes to him and he touches him. He puts his hands on the man's sores and he says, be clean. And the man is completely healed. But this is a different thing. Jesus has sort of a different answer this time. He, he says seemingly from a distance, go tell the priest, go show the priest who you are. That's his answer. Go to the priest and tell them who you are. It's a big sentence. He doesn't say go and be healed. He says go, show them you are. It's a big sentence. Here's why. Because priests determine cleanliness. The government set the rules about leprosy that, that you couldn't be a part of the society. But the thing about leprosy is there was no cure. There was no medicine, there was no balm, there was no nothing to get rid of it. The only cure for leprosy was the miraculous. And so that put the priests in charge of, of, of these men's, the, the life of men and women who were lepers. They're, the priests determined their life. So what Jesus says to them is no small thing. He says, go to the priests and show them you're alive. They said you were dead, go show them it isn't True, it's not a small thing. And so they do it, all of them, almost all of them. Nine lepers do as they're told. Nine lepers go to the priest, and then there's this one who doesn't. And I'm always into the one who does different things than the nine. This one who doesn't, one leper, he comes running back, and he falls at the feet of Jesus, and he cries out, thank you. It's so simple what he says. Thank you. You... You did this. The truth is, all 10 of the lepers were as good as dead. All 10 of them. Dead men walking. They were dead physically, spiritually, socially, and one can only imagine emotionally. The church and the state, everyone around them had declared them dead. And then they come to Jesus and they ask, will you just make us normal? Will you just make us like everybody else? And so they walk to the priests, assuming that the miracle was that Jesus made them normal, just like everybody else. But one of them realizes that it was way bigger than that. One of them realizes that the work of Jesus wasn't just to make them normal again. He did something so much bigger and so much better than that. Uh, I want to read, Robert Capon says it like this. He says, all the, uh, all the other lepers wanted out of Jesus was to be made well. To go back to their home and start over again, doing what everybody else had been doing. Going to school, driving to work, eating yogurt out of plastic containers. He really says that. I guess that's like his favorite thing. Okay, uh, Going to school, driving to work, eating yogurt out of plastic containers, meeting a nice girl, maybe starting a family with a home in the burbs and, in a, and in driving a station wagon. I feel like you could dream higher. Um, who could blame them? But that one Samaritan comes back. He was the only one who realized that Jesus didn't want to make people well, didn't just want to make people well or normal. He wanted to raise people from the dead. Jesus didn't just want to make people well or normal. He wanted to raise them from the dead. He realized, this one leper, that the work of Jesus was resurrection. That the mercy of Jesus wasn't just to make him like everybody else. The mercy of Jesus was to bring him back to life. He was a leper and a Samaritan. Did you catch that part? He gets called a Samaritan and an outsider two times. He's an outcast for his leprosy. And he's a loser for where he came from. 
outcast and a loser. He's basically dead. And, and, and an entire people group had determined him worthless. Every single set of Jewish eyes that looked at him and saw him declared him worthless except one set of eyes. He was basically dead. And one set of lips said otherwise. When Jesus sees this man, he doesn't see an outcast. And he doesn't see a loser. He doesn't see worthless. When Jesus looked at all ten lepers, he saw the most true them. He looked at this man and he looked at his friends and he didn't see lifeless. He saw the most alive. The most alive them. The huck when Zoe's in a room. Them. And then he spoke it. He spoke it. He said, go tell them who you are. Go show them who you are. He spoke it over them. And, and my hope is that we hear the same thing for us today. That for those of us who uh, in our faith feel lifeless, for those of us who feel bored or worthless because you keep meaning to do more with your faith than you actually end up doing, Jesus has spoken. He is speaking. Listen to him. Listen to him. The mercy of Jesus in your life was never just to make you well so that you could go back to your life just like everybody else. The mercy of Jesus was never just to make you normal. It is to blow life into your lungs. The mercy of, of Jesus sets us apart speaking life and hope and purpose into us saying, go show them who you are. You who feel dead, I have made you alive. Remember me and go show them who you are. Jesus took 10 men exactly how they were, lifeless outcasts, and he brought them back to life. But only one of them really saw it. Only one of them had this moment when it clicked what, has happened, what had happened, and he came running back. The truth is that as we follow Jesus, uh, we all have moments that feel like the story. Uh, moments when maybe uh, we walk back into town just like everybody else. Moments where we don't catch the resurrection work in our lives. And so that's the reason we have to continue to go back to the story. To continue to sit in our story, to sit in this story. It's to remind ourselves that we were once dead and we have been made alive. That, that we have been accepted just how we are. I think that the reason that we get so bored as followers of Jesus is just because we forget it. We forget what it felt like to be dead. We forget what it felt like to be uh, so alone and then so full of hope. Dead and then alive. We've forgotten where we came from because we've spent so much time just looking like everybody else. We've forgotten that we were dead until someone spoke into us, spoke something far more true over us. And sometimes we remember and we come running back. And sometimes we have seasons where we keep walking, spending our days trying to look normal. So long that we forgot that mercy isn't for looking normal. Mercy is for setting us free. Mercy is for bringing us back to life. Uh, the band's going to come on up. And we're going to take a few minutes here, we call it Selah, and just take a pause. Not move on too quickly from here. And here's my question. Are you bored? 
Like when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to things of faith, when it comes to this life, are you, are you bored? Do you feel stale? Do you feel lifeless? Do you remember what it feels like to feel alive? Um, I, I just want to spend a few minutes and I want to pray it over us. Because um, that was sort of my hunch. As I prayed and prepared for today that I felt like, um, I feel like there's a lot of us in this place. A lot of us who, who have forgotten what it feels like to feel alive in Christ. Uh, forgotten what it feels like um, to have freedom that set us free. And so let's just take a minute. We'll pray together. Um, and there'll be, then we'll just be quiet. There'll be verses on the screen, and you can follow those if you want. Um, my hope is in this minute that we'll just spend a few minutes to come back to the story of who Jesus says we are. So God, we ask your spirit to come and be in this room and be with us, in us. I thank you that this room is um, full of people who value showing up and be rem- being reminded of the story. And so God, I just pray in these moments, will you send your spirit to remind us, will you remind us where we've been, will you remind us who you are, what you're about, what you're calling us to be part of. I pray that you will take what feels stale, breathe new energy into it will you take what feels broken and will you fix it I pray that you will take what feels lifeless inside of us and breathe uh, new life, your life into it I pray that in the places where we feel we feel like The most important thing is just to stay normal, to do our day-to-day and our moment-to-moment. I pray that you will remind us that mercy is ours for the taking and that mercy was never meant for normal. Mercy was meant to make dead things alive. So God, will you fill this room and will you fill these people with your mercy? Will you cover us in it? remind us maybe just a taste of what it feels like to be alive again, to feel hope again, to believe that you are in control, that you are with us and for us again, that we are not alone, that we are not worthless because we haven't done the things that we meant to, that we haven't been the person that we meant to. God, will you Remind us that when you see us, your stance toward us is single and relentless. You love us. You call us yours. Paul, at the end of his letter, says that when we lack faith, you are faithful. And that you can never deny what's yours. And so, God, we say, in our faithlessness, will you be faithful? Will you fill us with faith? Will you remind us that you will never deny what is yours? And for those of us in the room who feel alive, God, I thank you. I thank you that um, in one place you can put people who feel stale and people who feel alive, and you can sit us right next to each other. And so I pray for those of us who feel so alive. um, Will your spirit come in in a way that uh, ignites us and gives us eyes to see people who maybe don't feel that way? 
people who need reminding of hope. Will you give us uh, spiritual eyes, eyes um, to see what you have for other people? Will you give us words and pictures and, and thoughts that we can um, share with each other? Will you create in this room a family walking together on a journey uh, closer to you for the good of the world?